I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's on page 932 in the Pew Bible, and we will be starting a new sermon series this morning. I'm excited about this series. Uh, Paul's letters to Timothy have been some of the most instructive and encouraging letters in the New Testament for, to me personally, probably for most of my life, over half of which time I have been a pastor. And yet, having read these letters uh, countless times for my own instruction and encouragement, um, I have never preached through First Timothy. Uh, so after 30 years of being in pastoral ministry, I'm looking forward to preaching through this pastoral letter. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to a pastor, or what we might call a, a pastoral representative on behalf of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. He wrote it to a pastor, but there's a very real sense in which Paul wrote it through the pastor for the church. Uh, we know this because at the end of the letter, Paul closes it by saying, grace be with you. And the you is plural. He is writing for the benefit of all of God's people, although he is writing specifically to Timothy as the pastor of the church. And as he ends the letter with that uh, exhortation, that word of blessing, grace be with you, so he begins his letter on a similar note. He begins on a strong note of what I have called a greeting worth repeating. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Years ago, when I was attending a Bible conference, um, I met for the first time a former tennis pro named David Wheaton and his wife Brody. Uh, some of you might Remember, David actually came and spoke here probably a little over a decade ago for a weekend Bible conference. And uh, over the course of the years, we have become pretty good friends. Uh, when Ruthie and I uh, took a summer sabbatical a few years ago, we actually drove out to Minnesota and uh, we stayed with them for a week at their lake house. And so we've been, you know, pretty good friends over the years. But I remember um, as we got to know each other and I was sitting at one of the Bible conference meals with them, uh, Brody, uh, David's wife, and I were jokingly lamenting in front of David why he's so slim and trim and it seems to come so easily to him. And we're like constantly battling uh, to watch our food intake, our weight, and stuff like that. And Brody summed it up really well. She said, you know, Matt, the difference between us and David is that David eats to live, but we live to eat. Right, And uh, we know those different kinds of people, but as I thought about that, the thought occurred to me that when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we as believers get to do both. Um, we not only feed on the gospel in order to live, to have eternal life, but we also live to feed on the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is our life. Paul says in the book of Colossians, Christ is your life. And so I want us to think about that. Um, as I thought about today's text, it occurred to me that a healthy church thrives on the blessings of salvation. That, I think, is the main takeaway that I get from Paul's greeting that I would impress upon you today. 
a healthy church, and we could say a healthy pastor, thrives on the blessings of salvation. And as I thought about uh, being able to feast at uh, the Lord's table, as I thought about the blessings of salvation that come to us in this verse, grace, mercy, and peace, as I thought about that past experience with the Wheaton sitting there at, at that dinner table, the thought occurred to me, Lord, I pray that we would be gospel gluttons. I pray that you would give us a voracious appetite for the limited resources that you have provided for us in Christ. And that is the thought that I hope to impress upon your minds and hearts today from this opening introduction in 1 Timothy. Paul had that kind of appetite. That's because Paul knew that the entire direction of his life and even his eternal destiny had been radically and fantastically changed by the God who mercifully and graciously rescued him from his hell-bound way of living. Paul, in fact, no sooner gets into the letter much at all before he recounts his own testimony in verses 12 to 17. We'll look at that more closely in weeks to come, but let me just read it now if you glance at your Bible with me. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you catch the themes of grace and mercy running through Paul's testimony? The key takeaway We don't have to guess because he tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the message that Paul wants everybody to know. And Paul says, I'm proof as public sinner number one that God saves the very worst. God will save anyone who trusts him because God saved me. This is good news, is it not? And that's the news that Paul was commissioned to preach. Uh, Paul was not only saved by God, but he was also sent by God to speak for God. Um, He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle literally means sent one. Now to qualify as an official apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. There, There was certainly more to being an apostle than that, but there was not less. And yet Paul met this qualification, because if you're familiar with Paul's testimony, he encountered the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. A few days later, after being radically saved, uh, Paul was commissioned by the Lord to preach. The Lord said to Paul through Ananias, He is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the people of Israel. In other words, Paul was going to take God's message of salvation to everyone. 
to Jews, to Gentiles, to commoners, and to kings. Paul says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. By command of God. Now, Paul simply could have said, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that should have sealed his credentials right there the, uh, as an authority to write this letter to Timothy and to the church. But here he emphasizes that he became an apostle by command of God. This formula, by command of, was used on official notices, and, and it meant by order of. It, it was uh, used on royal decrees, and it meant that when someone came by order of the king, so to speak, that this was to be received as coming from the king itself. And Paul is representing the king of kings. So this is a, a royal command that must be obeyed. Paul must obey God as an apostle, but he expects those who hear his word on behalf of Christ to also believe and obey. This also says that when, uh, suggests when Paul says that he was an apostle by command of God, that Paul was not self-appointed. He didn't make himself an apostle. He didn't affix that title to himself. Uh, Paul uh, did not march to the beat of his own drum. And Paul did not take his marching orders from the church. Paul took his marching orders from the head of the church, from God himself, from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. This is not only an assertion of Paul's authority, but it's also an assertion of Jesus' deity. The command of God the Father is tantamount to the command of God the Son. The command of God the Son is tantamount to the command of God the Father. Therefore, the Son must be equal in power and authority to the Father, which means Jesus is God. There's many people that would agree that Jesus was a good teacher. He was, you know, they might call him a political revolutionary, that he was a good moral example to follow. They'll talk about the ethic of Jesus. But the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to earth on a rescue mission for humanity? And he became human. He had existed with God in eternity past, but, but he took on a human body just like us so that he could live the perfect life of obedience to God that none of us ever have. So that he could take the penalty on himself that our sins deserve. And that in that body he would rise from the grave proving that as the Son of God he had defeated sin, death, and the devil forever and ever. And he did so on behalf of every single person who had trusted him. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. For God so loved the world, he, he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him, even the worst of sinners, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Have you admitted your guilt before God and asked Jesus to save you? If not, why not? 
He receives the very worst of sinners. Paul wants us to know that. Christ Jesus had made this known. He said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That once you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to him forever. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you at the very outset of this message to trust him today. Don't wait any longer. You're not guaranteed another breath. And once you take your final breath, it's too late to make that decision. The Bible says, God himself says in Scripture, in an acceptable time I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. I pray that if you have never trusted in Christ, you would not leave this room before doing so today. And then you, like Paul, will be able to say, all honor and glory to God forever and ever. I mean, Paul's testimony virtually always ends with a doxology, a song of praise to God, because Paul never got over the fact that God, who is so holy, would love a sinner so despicable like him. And I think that's one of the things that made Paul such a great missionary, such a mighty force for God, is he was always overwhelmed by a sense of God's love for him, the worst of sinners. Paul could have referred to the Father and the Son here in any number of ways, but he deliberately chooses the designations God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Could Paul really have used better designations for God for sinners like us. You know, it's great that God is holy. It's great that God is sovereign. It's great that God is all-powerful. It's great that God is all-knowing. But praise God that he is a savior. He's the savior. Otherwise, all those attributes would work against us on account of our sin. But God saves sinners. He says that Christ Jesus is our hope. And this is to say, and we'll break this down, but the highest authority on heaven and earth exercises his sovereign power for the good of everyone who trusts him. That's a mind-blowing thought. The highest authority in heaven and on earth exercises his sovereign, limitless power to do good to everyone who trusts in him. You remember what Mary said after... The angel Gabriel visited her and told her that God was with her, that the favor of the Lord was upon her, and that she would miraculously give birth as a virgin to the Son of God. Mary replied, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in who? In God, my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary was trusting the God who gave the babe in her womb to deliver her from her sins. That was her testimony. Mary knew that Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of God's promise to save his people. The angel said to Joseph, You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua. The Lord saves. So Paul uses the phrase, God our Savior, to point us back to the salvation that God accomplished us for his Son. One commentator writes, Paul was not sent by some nameless deity. 
He reminded Timothy and all who hear this letter that the God he serves is the saving God of the Scriptures. And his Son is Christ Jesus our hope. This phrase provides further encouragement. I mean, it's great to know that God is our Savior, but Paul goes on to say that Christ Jesus is our hope. This points us not only to the future, but it points us to a person, that the Lord Jesus himself is our hope. Not just what he does for us, but he is our hope. The Greek word for hope, in a Christian sense, conveys an element of absolute certainty. It's not a hope-so kind of hope. It is a fully confident expectation that God, through Christ, will come through for us. And that Christ will one day come back for us. This is the confidence that we have in Him. He is Christ Jesus, our hope. So Paul's letter begins on an authoritative note. He is Paul, the apostle, by Christ Jesus, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. It's an authoritative note, but it is also a strongly encouraging note. And this is important because Paul is going to be dealing with some difficult issues in this letter. Uh, And Timothy is going to have to deal with these issues live. You know, Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy about what to do. But in a very real sense, Timothy has the harder part because he's actually meeting with the people and dealing with these issues face to face. Something that certainly Paul was not afraid to do. He had done it before. But this time that task was going to be on Timothy. So Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, God is your Savior. Christ Jesus is your hope. And you are going to go through a rough time as you deal with these problems in the church. But look to the future. Look to the Lord because he will see you through. That's the message. You know, so often we set ourselves up for disappointment because we place our hopes in something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be our spouse. It could be our children or parents. It could be a boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be uh, something that we want to possess. It could be a certain situation or station of life that if I was only in this situation or this environment or this setup, I would be so happy. I would be so fulfilled. Uh, Everything in life would just come together in a wonderful way. And then when things don't work out exactly as we had hoped because they never do on all fronts. We get frustrated, discouraged, and sometimes depressed. Perhaps you even right now can think of someone in your life or a situation in your life that got you into such a state. You had kind of pinned your hopes on this person or pinned your hopes on this circumstance and it just collapsed and it left you devastated. Friend, don't let the lesson be lost on you. That's a good reminder to look only to the Lord. Only those who believe in him who have made Christ Jesus their hope will not be disappointed. And that's what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that no one who hopes in Christ will ever be disappointed. Jesus will never let you down. 
Jesus will never let you down. Now, if you see Jesus as a ticket to what you really want, he's more like a genie in the bottle, you're going to be let down because Jesus isn't a genie. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And as King of kings and Lord of lords, he calls the shots. But if you will trust him to direct your life according to his word by the power of his spirit, then you will wind up not only in the best place possible on earth, in the center of God's will, but you will enjoy unlimited joy in heaven. Well, healthy Christians and healthy churches thrive on the blessings of salvation because God is our Savior. Christ Jesus is our hope. And since this is true, Paul begins on a note of Christ-centered confidence and encouragement for the sake of the person to whom he is writing. And he's mentioned in the first part of verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Clearly, Paul had a close relationship with Timothy. He had become like a son to Paul. The first time that Timothy is mentioned is in the book of Acts. At the beginning of chapter 16, where Luke the historian recounts the early phases of Paul's second missionary journey. At this point in his expedition, Paul is, is in the, the area of the region that, that would now be southern central Turkey. Luke writes at the beginning of Acts 16, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So, if you were to read earlier in Acts, you would find that Paul had already been to Lystra on his first missionary journey. Uh, he had preached the gospel there previously, about a year earlier. And at that time, he got stoned. By that, I don't mean he was intoxicated or he was dazed out because of drugs. Like, he literally got stoned. He got huge rocks pelted at him so badly that he was believed to be dead. And so they dragged him outside to the city and were told that when the disciples gathered around him, Paul got up. Uh, most Bible scholars believe that God actually raised Paul from the dead in that moment. He was at least presumed to be dead. He either was dead or he was just about dead, breathing his last. But when the disciples gathered around him, Paul got up and went back into the city. Can you imagine? You think like, man, maybe Paul wasn't just a glutton for the gospel. Maybe he was a glutton for punishment. But it was the love of Christ that compelled him. Paul went back into the city, continued to proclaim Christ, and then the next day went to other cities preaching the gospel. The main purpose of this second missionary journey that Paul was on was to visit the believers at all the towns where he had previously preached the gospel on his first missionary journey, which resulted in the planting of churches. Paul wanted to see how are these believers coming along? How are they doing in the faith? What, you know, how are they doing as far as Bible teaching? How are they encouraging one another in the Lord? When Paul got to Lystra, the believers there had good things to say about this young man, Timothy. It's possible, we don't know this, that Paul might have actually preached uh, 
and led Timothy to Christ on that first missionary journey to Lystra. That's why some commentators believe why he calls him his son or child in the faith. But it could also be because of the incredible influence Paul had on him from his earliest years as a Christian as he traveled with Paul. We don't know. But we do know that they had a very close relationship. And we know that after Timothy came to Christ, even at a very young age, that he matured very rapidly. He matured greatly. He had already earned a good reputation among the believers in that town. And they brought to Paul a good report concerning this young man. And so Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He wanted to further mentor this young man who had already shown remarkable maturity despite his youth. Timothy became Paul's travel companion and co-worker in the ministry of the gospel. In addition to all the evangelizing and the discipling they did, they collaborated to write six books of the New Testament. The letters of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1-2 Thessalonians, and Philemon come from Paul and Timothy, though Paul, of course, is the primary writer and therefore is credited with their authorship. Later, during this second missionary journey on which Timothy was traveling with him, Paul arrived in Ephesus, and he preached the gospel there. And Ephesus is also in modern-day Turkey. And there he preached the gospel, and a church was planted. And shortly thereafter, Paul revisited these believers for what he knew would be the last time. He recognized that he would never see their faces again. If you read Acts 20, you would know that this was a very emotional farewell, uh, that they dropped on their knees and prayed and hugged there on the beach before Paul got in the ship and left. And in those precious final moments together, Paul exhorted the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church at Ephesus saying this in Acts 20, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's his farewell message to the pastors at Ephesus. By the time we get to the end of Acts, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And guess who's by his side? Timothy. On that occasion, Paul writes various letters to various churches, and one of them is to the church at Philippi. This is one of the letters that is known as Paul's prison epistles. And in his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul writes in chapter 2 of that letter, I have no one like him, talking about Timothy. I have no one like him, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy was all in. Timothy was faithful. He was a constant companion of Paul. We even know from Hebrews 13.23 that at some point, Timothy himself spent time in prison for the sake of the gospel. But on this occasion, 
when Paul is imprisoned at the end of the book of Acts, probably sometime around the year uh, 60 to 62 AD, probably about the following year, maybe 63 AD, Timothy is sent to Ephesus. And Paul sends him there to be his pastoral representative. And by the time Paul sends Timothy back to Ephesus, his prediction that he warned about in Acts 20 has already come true. False teachers have already infiltrated the church, drawn disciples after themselves, distorting the truth, and it was creating problems in the church. And it's Timothy's job to confront them. In fact, today we're covering verses 1 and 2. Paul begins talking about this problem in verse 3. So Timothy has his first tough assignment. And so it's no wonder why Paul is is packing words of confidence and encouragement in Christ here at the very introduction to his letter, the greeting. We know from this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and the things that Paul says about Timothy and some of his other New Testament letters that Timothy clearly had the gift of teaching. And it was confirmed by those who served as overseers in the church. But Timothy was also young. Timothy could, it seems, be timid at times. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and and sending Timothy on a mission there, Paul said, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Why well, would say, make sure you put Timothy at ease among you? I think it's because Timothy kind of got butterflies in the stomach. He might have really gotten turned up inside when he had to deal with difficult issues in the church. So Paul is essence is saying, don't give Timothy a hard time. He's representing me. More importantly, he's representing the Lord. He's doing the Lord's work. You know, receive him as you should. Let him be at ease when he comes to minister among you because he's doing God's work. Timothy was committed to doing the Lord's work, but he wasn't like, by nature, a missionary commando like Paul, right? Like Paul's like, he's kind of like the gospel version of Rambo. You know, he's just like, I don't know. He's got the the guts, the brawn, and and he's just... Yeah, he's just kind of like a let's-go kind of guy. He is a a leader's leader. But Timothy, though he has definitely leadership qualities, he certainly has pastoral qualifications, isn't like Paul. From everything we read in the epistles, we see that, that Timothy is definitely faithful. No question about that. But it seems at times that Timothy could be fretful. That Timothy could become, in some cases, fearful and tearful when he faced difficult circumstances, when he faced difficult people. So that Paul would write in his second letter, the last letter Paul writes in the New Testament is to Timothy. And he says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. As I remember your tears. This could be tears that Paul knew about when Timothy was going through a hard time or Maybe when Timothy left Paul, Paul was mindful of the tears. Maybe he had a snapshot of that image, weeping as they parted ways, knowing how much he loved Paul and what a difficult work he was going to. Paul says, Timothy, as I remember your tears, 
I long to see you that my joy may be full. No, Timothy, for many, many years, has always been one of my favorite Bible characters. So much so that we named our youngest son Timothy. His name means to honor God. I greatly admire Paul, but I feel like I relate better to Timothy. I think most people probably do, which is why he is such an endearing character in the New Testament. Since Timothy's mother was Jewish and his father was an unbelieving Greek, Orthodox Jews considered Timothy to be an illegitimate child. According to Jewish standards, that's what he was. But Paul refers to Timothy here as my true child, my genuine child in the faith. This was meant not only to encourage Timothy, but also to convey to the church that Timothy has not only Paul's affection, but Timothy has Paul's stamp of approval. And Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, commanded by God to do his work. Because Timothy had true faith, he was not only Paul's child in the faith, but he was God's child. And you know what the wonderful thing is? That's the privilege that belongs to every believer in Jesus Christ. John would write in his first epistle, see what kind of love God the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And yet that is what we are. What an awesome truth that is. And because God loves to give good gifts to his children, Paul bestows a triple blessing on Timothy in the form of a prayer wish at the end of verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's talk about these three briefly in closing. First of all, grace. Grace. The standard pagan greeting in the Greek language, was karain, and it simply meant greetings. But Paul used a similar-sounding word and Christianized it, substituting karain with charis, which means grace. You can see the difference there up there on your screen. Greetings, karain, grace, charis. Grace is God's undeserved kindness to sinners. Ephesians 2, Paul writes that by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all of grace. But I believe that in this context, and we see this in other places of Scripture, that Paul is talking more than saving grace. He's talking more just than just about our salvation, as great as that is. It's actually something that comes with our salvation. Paul is talking not only about God's saving grace, but he's talking about God's sustaining grace. And this is what Timothy needs as he is about to face these difficult challenges in the church. John 1, 16 John writes, from his fullness, that is the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. We have all received grace upon grace. Think of, think of an ocean surf, wave pounding after wave on the shore in endless succession. Such is God's grace toward his children. 
one wave after another. Romans 8.32, a, a verse that we'll be reading as part of a larger portion of Scripture during our communion service, says that if, if God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how then will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And the idea is that if God has given us the greatest gift of all, the gift of His own Son who gave His life for us, why would God hold anything else that is for our good? Of course God's not going to do that. It is grace upon grace. F.F. F. Bruce wrote, There is no limit to the supply of grace which God has placed at His people's disposal in Christ. Let me read that again. There is no limit on the supply of grace which God has placed at his people's disposal in Christ. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh that Satan had given just to, to, to torment Paul. And Paul prayed three times that God would remove that thorn, whatever it was. And I'm glad that we're not told what it was because it could represent anything. We all have different things that might torment us to no end. And Paul prayed three times for Christ to take it away, but Christ gave him a different answer. He said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul, I'm going to allow this to happen so that you will not be filled with pride, but you will be forced to depend on me. Paul, this thorn is not pleasant, but it's actually for your good. Because the more you in, in desperation rely on me, the more of my grace I'm going to pour out on you. And Paul, that is better than even the most ideal circumstances on earth. There's no limit to the supply of grace which God has placed at his people's disposal in Christ. Not only saving grace, but sustaining grace. Are you drawing from the well of salvation, God's sustaining grace, in whatever you're going through? The next blessing is mercy. Mercy carries the idea of God's special care for a person in need. The Old Testament equivalent of this New Testament word is hesed which speaks of God's steadfast love that undergirds His covenant with His people. It's a faithful love. It's a steadfast love. A love that will never end God's love for His own people. In the book of Lamentations, and that pretty much tells you what the book is about, in the book of Lamentations, which was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, as part of the Lord's great discipline upon His people for their sins, the poet expresses his sorrow and suffering. Uh, some think that maybe Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. He is, after all, referred to as the weeping prophet. We don't know that for certain, but whoever the author of Lamentations is, he is expressing his sorrow and suffering that came as a result of the Lord's severe discipline in his life. But amid that sorrow... In the smack middle of the book, in the midst of his sorrow, he is absolutely certain that God will once again show mercy to his people. God has disciplined them hard, but God will show them mercy again. And it's in that context he says this, My soul continually remembers my affliction and my wanderings and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I'm not going to hope in Jerusalem. I'm not going to hope in the strength of our army. I'm not going to put my hope in my circumstances because I don't know what the next day will bring forth. But I know that God's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And Paul would say, amen, Christ Jesus is our hope. All of the promises of God in him are yes. And they are in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. And as sinners, we stand in constant need of God's mercy. We also stand in need of it as God's servants. Paul's typical greeting in his New Testament letters, you can see this for yourself, is grace and peace. But it's only in his letters to Timothy, both letters, where he inserts the word mercy. He sticks mercy in the middle. I think that's because, not only because Timothy needed God's mercy as a sinner, but Timothy needed God's mercy as a servant who was in a very difficult situation. Timothy was in a tough situation that would bring him to his knees, that would bring him to tears, that would bring Timothy to the end of himself, but God would be there to give Timothy his special care in that moment. And that's what Paul wants Timothy to know. God's tender mercy would be in that place for him. Then there's peace. Peace is first and foremost peace with God. Paul writes in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, not by our works, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, we're told that he himself is our peace. But this also refers to the inner peace that comes from God. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, listen, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. You see, the peace that the world gives is always dependent on life circumstances. How much money you're making. How good things are going for you. But Jesus gives us a far superior peace. The well-being that results from a right relationship with him, regardless of what your circumstances are. Jesus offers his people, guarantees his people, a well-being that results from your personal relationship with him, regardless of your surrounding circumstances. One commentator reminds us, God's dealings with his people are full of grace, mercy, and peace. That's good news for those who are still battling sin, which is all of us. End quote. And that's why the opening lines of Paul's letter to Timothy is a greeting worth repeating. As I thought about this triple blessing of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our hope, The words of an old hymn came to mind that mentions all three of these blessings in the very first stanza. I had these words posted 
in my old office downstairs in the church basement for probably the better part of a decade on the bulletin board right next to my desk. Here's the first and last stanza. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. What shall we render to you, Lord, for all of your benefits toward us? We will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon your name. We will worship you in the presence of your people. Father, we thank you for pouring out your grace, mercy, and peace on us so abundantly, lavishly through Jesus Christ, your Son. We confess and we agree that no one who hopes in him will ever be disappointed. And yet we also confess, Father, that there are times when we, sometimes even unwittingly, do place our hope in other things, thinking that these things are the key to our happiness. But these are false hopes that always leave us disappointed, disillusioned, empty, and discouraged. And so we thank you for reminding us, not only through the Scriptures, but even through the hardships of life, where our true hope lies. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to fix our eyes on Christ Jesus, our hope, the author and champion of our faith. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.